Hey, I'm Pastor Joel, and just want to say thank you for downloading or streaming this message today. My prayer for you is that you're blessed by the content that you hear. As a church, our desire is to make disciples of Jesus, and we do that by helping people to trust and follow Him in every aspect of their daily life. So if this is something that blesses you, we just hope that you'll feel free to share this with others so that they might be encouraged and challenged by it as well. It's so good to see you this morning and glad you're here. And if you're watching with us from home, we want to just welcome you in as well to our services and glad that you're choosing to be a part of this with us. And uh, if you have your Bibles this morning, we love to celebrate God's truth and that we get to study this. Turn with me to Daniel chapter two, and we're going to look at a passage in Daniel chapter two together this morning. Uh, as you turn there, I want to ask you this question. Have you ever had a dream or uh, a recurring dream that really bothered you? Uh, maybe you have. I know I certainly have. When I was a kid, uh, I kept having this dream over and over again that I was trapped in a haunted house and being chased by these crazy things, right? Scary things. And so when you're little and you can't control what you're dreaming and you wake up in the middle of the night screaming in a haunted house, that's a little scary thing. I don't know why I had that dream. It just happened over and over again. I didn't watch scary movies. I still don't watch scary movies. I don't have the heart for it. Uh, I can't, but maybe you're that kind of person and love those kinds of things. I just can't go there. But, uh, but I kept having this dream. Uh, and then just recently, I've started having another dream. Uh, I thought it was a one-time thing until it happened again last night. And I had this dream as a public speaker, communicator, a pastor who gets on stage in front of people. Uh, months and months ago, I had this dream that I got on stage and I couldn't find what I was supposed to be preaching from in my Bible. I would just be flipping through and going, I know it's here. I've studied it all week but I could not find it. And then last night, same dream. I got up to preach, and I could not find the book of Daniel. And I was just standing up here, stuttering through, trying to find it. And it was nerve-wracking and all these things. To make it worse, uh, on the front row was my pastor from when I was growing up, the guy that mentored me as a high school student and college student. And sitting right beside him was Pastor David Jeremiah from the radio ministry. So I don't know why David Jeremiah was here instead of in California today, but uh, he was. And neither of them were very impressed that as the pastor, I couldn't find the text that I was going to be preaching from, from the Bible. That didn't, didn't impress them very much at all. Uh, and so, you know, what I did today, just to make sure that I found it, is I looked up Daniel before I came up here on stage, because <laughs> my dream messed with me last night, right? And that's what we're going to see as we jump into Daniel chapter 2 today. If you were with us last week, or if you're just joining in for the first time, we started this new series through the book of Daniel, and we saw last week that the king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, has conquered Jerusalem and Judah, and they've taken captives back to Babylon. And so now as he's in Babylon, there are these four men that specifically have garnered the king's attention and that God has raised up for a time like this. Their names are Daniel, Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael. You know them potentially more influentially as uh, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, right? And so these four men are in the service of the king. And on this day, the king has something that's never happened before. And this is where we pick up in the story, Daniel chapter two. In the second year of his reign, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams and his mind was troubled and he could not sleep. So the king summoned the magicians, the enchanters, the sorcerers, and astrologers to tell him what he had dreamed. And when they had come in and stood before the king, he said to them, I've had a dream that troubles me, and I want to know what it means. Then the astrologers answered the king, May the king live forever. Tell your servants the dream, and we will interpret it. And the king replied to the astrologers, 
This is what I firmly decided. If you do not tell me what my dream was and interpret it, I will have you cut into pieces and your houses turned into piles of rubble. But if you tell me the dream and explain it, you will receive from me gifts and rewards and great honor. So tell me the dream and interpret it for me. Once more, they replied, let the king tell his servants the dream and we'll interpret it. And the king answered, I'm certain that you are trying to gain time because you realize that this is what I have firmly decided. If you do not tell me the dream, there's only one penalty for you. You have conspired to tell me misleading and wicked things, hoping the situation will change. So then tell me the dream and I will know that you can interpret it. And the astrologers answered the king, there is no one on earth who can do what the king asks. No king, however great and mighty, has ever asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or astrologer. What the king asks is too difficult. No one can reveal it to the king except the gods, and they don't live among humans. This made the king so angry and furious that he ordered the execution of all the wise men of Babylon. So the decree was issued to put the wise men to death, and many were sent to look for Daniel, and men were sent to look for Daniel and his friends to put them to death. So King Nebuchadnezzar, early on in his reign over Babylon, began having a dream, or more accurately, maybe a continuation of dreams, that he was having this recurring dream, and he didn't know what it meant. And so for Nebuchadnezzar, it bothered him. He was troubled by it, either because he couldn't understand the dream or he couldn't remember it. And so he calls his wise men in this council of astrologers and enchanters and sorcerers. And he, he says to these guys, look, here's, here's what's going on. I'm having this dream and I want you guys to tell me the dream and then tell me what it means. And we just read this, the back and forth. We see this take place and they go, okay, listen, here's what's going to happen. You tell us the dream and we tell you what it means. Like that's a pretty normal, natural thing to happen. We see this play out in scripture multiple times. You tell me a dream and I can interpret it for you. And yet for this example, Nebuchadnezzar does something that's really on the crazy end of things. He comes back to him and he says, no, no, you're going to tell me what I dreamed. And then you're going to tell me what my dream means. And the wise men keep going back and forth. Tell us the dream, we'll interpret it. Nebuchadnezzar says, I've firmly established this, that you're going to tell me the dream and you're going to interpret it, or I'm going to put you to death. And so we see this all play out, and there's a few reasons why this may have happened. Number one is that they were leftover members of his father's cabinet, the king before him, Nabopolassar, that he just doesn't trust these guys, and he wants to get rid of them because they're from the, uh, his father's uh, cabinet. The second reason may just simply be that he felt they were plotting against him and that there was a conspiracy against his leadership. And so the easiest way to get them out of power uh, is just to blame them for not being able to do what he requires of them to do and that's to kill them. I think there's maybe a third reason here too and we see this in the text a little bit. I think he says, you tell me the dream and I'll know that you can interpret it for me. Because anybody can tell you anything if you tell them a dream, right? If you said something, if you went to a friend of yours and went, hey, I've been having this dream, do you think you can tell me what this means and you gave them some of the understanding, hey, here's the dream, here's what happened, X event happened, then Y event, then Z event, and you went, well, I don't know, maybe this means this, and maybe that means that, and you can kind of go, okay, well, that's great. But in this instance, he goes, listen, I'll know that I can trust your interpretation if you can tell me what I dreamed. And so that's his expectation of them. And yet they say to him, we can't do this. Look at verse 10. 
Uh, actually, before we do that, let me, let me go back to what Nebuchadnezzar's uh, character is like here. He tells them in his ruthlessness, he says, listen, I, I'm going to kill you if you don't do this. I'm going to cut you into small pieces and destroy your homes if you can't do what I ask. And when you look at that, you go, man, that's completely in line with his character. Nebuchadnezzar was a bad dude. Right? And so this is somebody who he had a really rough character. He was a king who was ruthless. When you go back and see his besieging of Jerusalem, when he conquers Israel, and when he goes against them three different times, he goes in and he, he'll uh, besiege the area and he'll set up a king and then the king will rebel against him. And he'll come back in and he'll take that king out and he'll set up another king who's going to be subservient to him and then he'll leave and then that king will rebel against him. The third time that Nebuchadnezzar has to come down to Jerusalem, after these guys have rebelled against him continually, the last king that's on the throne there is a guy named Zedekiah. And he goes to war against Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar comes in and destroys everything. He takes out Jerusalem. He destroys the walls of Jerusalem, the city of Jerusalem, the temple. He leaves everything in rubble. And he conquers uh, Jerusalem, but he captures Zedekiah. And then he captures Zedekiah's family. And what he does is he brings the sons of Zedekiah right in front of him. And he kills his sons. And then he puts out Zedekiah's eyes. So that the last thing that Zedekiah will see on earth is the death of his family. That's Nebuchadnezzar. Then he puts Zedekiah in chains and he makes him walk blind to Babylon from Israel. That's the kind of character that we're dealing with here. So when Zedekiah or when Nebuchadnezzar says to these guys, you tell me what I dreamed and then you interpret it for me or I'm going to kill you. They know he's not playing games. He's serious about this. And so what we see them respond in verse 10 is this. The astrologers answered the king. There's no one on earth who can do what the king asks. No king, however great and mighty, has ever asked such a thing of any astrologer or magician or enchanter. What the king asks is too difficult. No one can reveal it to the king except the gods. And they don't live among humans. Right? And so they're actually correct in their response to the king. There's no one on earth who can do what you're asking. Your request, your demand is so outside of the bounds of reality, no one can do this. And they're right. But then they go, you know what? Maybe the gods could. We serve this plethora of gods. This is a polytheistic culture. And so they go, maybe the gods could. But the problem with that is that our gods don't live here. Our gods are way out in space somewhere doing whatever they do, and they don't intervene in the affairs of humanity. We have all these gods that we worship, but they're not engaged with us. They're not tuned into us. They don't listen to us. They don't respond to us. We have no ability personally to do what you ask, and we can't take this to the gods because they can't help either. Man, what a terrible God to serve, right? To go, man, I've got this God that I put all my faith and trust in, but they can't do anything for me. They can't answer me. They can't intervene in my situations. That's the kind of gods that they're facing. And so here's the problem. They didn't know the one true God. They didn't know the God of the Hebrews, the God we worship today. They didn't know this God. Because when you go back and you look at the story of God in Scripture, here's what you're going to find over and over and over again. God dwells among his people. He lives with us. When God created mankind in the garden, what did he do with Adam in the cool of the day? He walked with him. When the people of Israel were enslaved in Egypt and God heard their cries for release from slavery, he came down and he met with them. He released them from slavery. 
And then as he helped them out of Egypt and into the wilderness where they would wander around for 40 years because of their sin, because they wouldn't trust God, he wouldn't let them go straight to the promised land, but he made them wander around in the desert for 40 years. But he was with them the whole time. By day, he would be a pillar of cloud in the sky. At night, a pillar of fire that they could follow and they could see. When he called Moses up onto the mountain to give him the Ten Commandments, God met with him on the mountain. He wrote by hand the commandments in stone and he gave them to Moses to give to his people. When the people built a tabernacle in their camp as they wandered around, God would let his presence come and dwell in the tabernacle in the city of their their camp, the center of their camp. Then when they get into the promised land and they go and they build the city of Jerusalem, they build a temple there. And what do they do? God comes and he dwells. He puts his presence in the temple. He's literally dwelling among men. Then when you fast forward to the New Testament and we see Jesus come onto the scene, John describes him and says, the word became flesh and he made his dwelling among us. He came and he lived with us. Jesus, God in flesh, came to be with us. That's the God we serve. He's not impersonal. He's not far off. He's not distant. He is here. He's close. He's nearby. He's personal. He knows us. And so these astrologers and enchanters, they go, God, our gods can't do anything about this. They were unable to answer the king and their gods couldn't help him. And so Nebuchadnezzar makes the decree to have all of the wise men put to death. Look at verse 13. The decree was issued to put the wise men to death. And so men were sent to look for Daniel and his friends to put them to death. And when Arioch, the commander of the king's guard, had come out to put to death the wise men of Babylon, Daniel spoke to him with wisdom and tact. He asked the king's officer, why did the king issue such a harsh decree? And Arioch then explained the matter to Daniel. Apparently, Daniel hadn't been present at the first deal, and so Arioch has to tell him this is what's gone on. And at this, in verse 16, at this, Daniel went into the king and asked for time so that he might interpret the dream for him. And so here's what we remember from chapter 1. At the end of chapter 1, we're told that Daniel has the ability to interpret all kinds of dreams and visions. And so he goes, man, when he heard about this story and he said the king's had dreams and he can't understand them and nobody can explain them, he says, I want time. And he goes to the king and he asks, can you give me time so that I can ask my God for help with this? Daniel spoke with wisdom and tact. This was a moment of crisis. Like this guy came and knocked on Daniel's door and when he opened it, he's got a sword in hand going, I'm here to kill you today because the king had a dream. Now, I don't know if anybody's ever knocked on your door before, hopefully not, and when you answered it, they went, hi, I'm here to kill you. That's a bad day. I don't care who you are. That's a bad day. This is a crisis moment. And yet Daniel doesn't slam the door and run from the guy and hide. He doesn't freak out. He doesn't panic. It says he acted in wisdom and tact. He simply asked the guy, why is the king doing this? And so here's what we find. And if you're taking notes and want to write something down this morning, you can just simply write this. A crisis doesn't make a person A crisis reveals a person's character. In this moment, when Daniel has this time and he's in front of this guard, this man who's come to kill him, he doesn't develop this character in this moment. He reveals his character in this moment. He's already been following God. He's already acted in wisdom and tact. He's already been someone who trusts God no matter what happens in his life. And so this isn't a moment for Daniel to panic. Although it's a crisis moment, he's not panicking. It's just that in this moment, he steps up and he says, here's what I want to do. I want to see the king. 
there's got to be a better solution. Because here's what I think Daniel understood. The king still wanted to know what his dream meant. And having everybody killed, Daniel included, isn't going to get him the desired result that he wants. So Daniel goes, I'm going to go to the king and I'm going to offer him a better deal. Hey, if you'll give me time, I'll ask my God if he will give me the meaning of the vision so that I can tell you. And so apparently Nebuchadnezzar agrees to that. We're not told in scripture how long he gave Daniel, but apparently it's pretty imminent. Because Daniel goes back to his friends and goes, guys, we got to pray right now. Look at this next verse, uh, verse 17. Daniel returned to his house and he explained the matter to his friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. And he urged them to plead for mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery so that he and his friends might not be executed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. Now, here's the significance of this. Daniel doesn't just go, okay, well, I guess I'll pray to God and go to sleep and ask God to give me the vision. He pulls his friends in with him. He goes, you guys need to plead with me for God's mercy. He asks other people to join him in prayer. And here's why that's significant. Their heads were on the line too. They believe like Daniel does. They have the same character that Daniel does. They have the same heart that Daniel does. They worship the same God that Daniel does. And so he says, listen, I need you guys to join in with me. This is a necessary time for us to pray together because this is going to impact your life as well if, we don't, if God doesn't come through. So pray with me. This is an important part of our faith as Christians that we have the pleasure of praying for and with one another, that we carry each other's burdens And when you go through times of crisis, I count it a joy and a privilege when you tell me, hey, this is something that's going on in my life. Will you pray for me? I love to to pray for you. I consider it a privilege of my, my job, my ministry here to be able to pray for you when you go through difficult things. But it's not just me. I don't have any more direct line to heaven or a more significant responsibility to God than you do. You can ask those in your life group. You can ask those who are sitting right around you in church that you can say, hey, look, here's something going on in my life. I need somebody to be intervening with me before the the God of heaven. Will you pray for me? Will you pray with me? Will you ask God and, and seek him for mercy in my life? And so that's what Daniel does. He goes to his friends and they ask for God to come through. And in this case, God does just that. Look at verse 19. During the night, the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision. And then Daniel praised the God of heaven. This is such an important thing for us to get today because when we see this, many of us pray for God to do things. And then when he comes through for us, we just treat it as if he was supposed to. Well, that's his job. I ask for things, he gives me what I want. Like we have a service contract with God and we go, this is broken in my life and you're the service contract guy, so you're supposed to come and fix it, right? And so we just act like God is just supposed to, on a whim, do whatever we ask him to do. And instead of seeing it like that, what we need to see is that when God does come through for us, we need to be the kind of people who don't just expect him to and go, well, he did his job. Great. Go on with your life. We need to come back to God and praise him for that. We need to say thank you when he comes through for us as we pray. And there's a story in the New Testament of when Jesus is alive and he's walking on earth and, and he runs into these guys. There's 10 men and they're, they're covered in leprosy. They're outcasts from their society. There's 10 of them. They can't, they can't have re- regular relationships with other people. And so they come to Jesus and they kneel in front of him and they ask him for healing. And Jesus does. He heals them of their leprosy. And as they walk away, their skin starts returning to normal. They are healed just as they walk on. And a few minutes later, one guy out of the 10 turns around and comes back to Jesus. And he says, thank you. Thank you for making me whole. Thank you for healing me. Thank you for what you did in my life. And Jesus looks at him and goes, weren't there 10 of you? (laughs) Where are the other guys? Where are the other nine guys? 
This one guy, when God intervened in his life, was willing to come back and say, thank you. The other guys just saw God as doing something miraculous for them, but they had no gratitude for it. As Christians, we should be the kind of people that when God comes through for us, that we say, thank you. And so look at verse 20. And Daniel said, praise be to the name of God forever and ever. Wisdom and power are his. He changes times and seasons. He deposes kings and he rises up others. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to the discerning. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what lies in darkness and light dwells with him. I thank and praise you, God of my ancestors. You have given me wisdom and power. You have made known to me what we asked of you. You have made known to us the dream of the king. Now, there's a lot of important theological truths in this prayer that we could linger on, but I want you to see just a couple of things simply that Daniel claims. He doesn't claim any credit for the dream, dream being revealed. He focuses on the fact that God is full of wisdom and full of power. He says, you put kings in place and you depose kings. You have wisdom. You have power. You change times and seasons. You set up empires and you cause empires to fall. And so Daniel, as he walks through this, he sees in a word that God is sovereign and he praises him for that because you're the God over everything. You're sovereign in all of these matters of affair. You're sovereign in the matters of men and he praises God. Daniel doesn't take credit for what God does. Only God could have done this, right? So think back to the magicians and astrologers and the enchanters and the sorcerers that stood in front of the king and said, no one can do what you're asking. Not even the gods can do what you're asking. And in this moment, I think what we see here is that if your God can't do the impossible, you have the wrong God. So I don't know what you're doing in your life. I don't know what God you think you're serving. But if you have a God that you think, well, I can't ask him for that because God could never possibly come through, you're serving the wrong God or you have the wrong impression of God. And so Daniel is able to pray to God because he knows his God is limitless. There's nothing that's impossible for him. You and I can ask God for big things and God can come through. But here's what I want you to hear this morning. God can come through and he can do anything, but he's not obligated to. There are things in your life that you're going to pray for and God's not going to answer the way that you want him to. And that's okay. He's not obligated to do exactly what you want because you and I don't always know what's best even for us. We think we do. We think we should be able to pray and God just snap to it and come through for us and do exactly what we wanted, but that's not how God operates. God knows the long-term plan of his world and how everything that he does from beginning to end is coming together for his purposes. And as a result of that, there may be some things that you ask for. You may ask for the, loved, uh, the healing of a loved one. You may ask for the restoration of a relationship. You may ask for your financial situation to change. God can do all of those things but he doesn't have to. And what we as Christians need to learn to do is to accept that God is capable of anything. We shouldn't be afraid to ask, but if he doesn't come through exactly like we want, we need to trust that he has a better plan and a bigger story that we can't see yet and to trust him in those things. We're gonna hear more about this next week when we see Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego take a greater story, a uh, place in the story. We're gonna see how God acts in that and how they think about these things. But for now, let's go back to verse 24. Then Daniel went to Arioch, whom the king had appointed to execute the wise men of Babylon. And he said to them, do not execute the wise men of Babylon. Take me to the king and I'll interpret his dream for him. 
And Arioch told Daniel, uh, took Daniel to the king at once and said, I found a man among the exiles from Judah who can tell the king what his dream means. And the king asked Daniel, also called Belteshazzar, are you able to tell me what I saw in my dream and interpret it? And listen to what Daniel says. No wise man, enchanter, magician, or diviner can explain to the king the mystery he's asked about. And don't you just know at that moment the king's going, great, just another guy that can't do anything. This is, my guys have already told me this. You can't do it. We get it. No, nobody can do what I'm asking. But he goes this, but there is a God in heaven, and he reveals mysteries. He has shown King Nebuchadnezzar what will happen in days to come. Your dream and the visions that pass through your mind as you are lying in bed are these. Now, before we look at the dream, I just want to point out that, again, Daniel gives all glory to God. He doesn't say, oh, yeah, I went to sleep last night. I had this dream. I think it's the same one you dreamed. I've got this, king. I can do this. This is all about me and how great I am. He goes, no, no, no. Nobody can do what you ask, not even me. But there's a God in heaven, and he reveals mysteries. And I want to give glory to him because he is able to do anything. So I want you to look at the things that God reveals and if you don't know the story, maybe there's people in here who go, I've never read this story before. I don't know what's about to happen. I kind of actually wish, Joel, that you just get to the point and tell me what the dream means. I've been asking this question for like 20 minutes now, and we're still stuck on Daniel and him praying and asking for these things. I just want to know, like Nebuchadnezzar, what the dream means. Well, you're in good company because that's how we're supposed to feel as we read through this. We're supposed to be on the hook, just like Nebuchadnezzar is going, I've had these dreams. I want to know what it means. Nobody can tell me. I'm curious. I'm interested. Are you curious? Are you interested? And here's where we find ourselves. Verse 29, as your majesty was lying there, your mind turned to things to come, and the revealer of mysteries showed you what is going to happen. In other words, he showed you future events. As for me, this mystery has been revealed to me, not because I have greater wisdom than anyone else alive, but so that your majesty may know the interpretation and, what you may, and that you may understand what went through your mind. Now, there are times in the Bible that God will give people dreams, like the story of Joseph, where the Pharaoh has a dream and tells Joseph the dream and Joseph interprets it for him and then says, now here's what you should do to change events for your better, for your favor. There's going to be seven years of good and plenty. You should store up grain during those years because after that, seven years of famine are coming and there's going to be no harvest, no crops, no growing, and people are going to starve to death. So here's what you need to do to change those events. In that case, God gave a dream to change events of the future. In this case, Daniel looks at the king and he says, God gave you a glimpse of the future so that, not that you could change things, but so that you would know and understand. They're coming. The future's coming. God's already established it. God's already put it in place. This is going to happen. He's sovereign over everything. Bank on it. The future cannot be changed, but God wanted you to know what's coming. And so here we go, verse 31. Your majesty looked, and there before you stood a large statue, an enormous, dazzling statue, awesome in appearance. The head of the statue was made of pure gold, its chests and arms of silver, its belly and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of baked clay. And while you were watching, a rock was cut out, but not by human hands. It struck the statue on its feet of iron and clay, and it smashed them. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were all broken to pieces and became like chaff on a threshing floor in the summer, and the wind swept them away without leaving a trace. But the rock that struck the statue became a huge mountain, and it filled the whole earth. This was the dream, and now we will interpret it to the king. 
your majesty. You are the king of kings. The God of heaven has given you dominion and power and might and glory. In your hands, he's placed all mankind and the beasts of the field and the birds in the sky. Wherever they live, he has made you ruler over them all. You are the head of gold. After you, another kingdom will arise, inferior to yours. Next, a third kingdom, one of bronze, will rule over the whole earth. Finally, there will be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, for iron breaks and smashes everything, and as iron breaks things to pieces, so it will crush and break all the others. Just as you saw that the feet and the toes were partly of baked clay and partly of iron, so this will be a divided kingdom. Yet it will have some of the strength of iron in it, even as you saw iron mixed with clay. As the toes were partly iron and partly clay, so this kingdom will be partly strong and partly brittle. And just as you saw the iron mixed with baked clay, so the people will be a mixture and will not remain united any more than iron mixes with clay. Verse 44, in the time of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, nor will it be left to another people. It will crush all those kingdoms and bring them to an end, but it will itself endure forever. This is the meaning of the vision of the rock cut out of a mountain but not by human hands. A rock that broke the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold to pieces. The great God has shown the king what will take place in the future. The dream is trustworthy and its interpretation is true. Now this last thing that Daniel says, I think is the most important thing we're supposed to get from this today. You're gonna notice that he talks about Nebuchadnezzar and says, you're the king of kings. You're over everything. God has put you in place. You are the head of gold. But there are gonna be other kingdoms that come after you. And if you watch how the statue kind of is described, they get lesser in value. Gold, silver, bronze, iron, clay, right? They continue to decrease in value and worth. And so as he talks about this, he says, you're in a position of power and authority, king, but there are going to be other kingdoms who come after you. And they're coming, and Daniel doesn't spend a lot of time. He doesn't even tell them, here's the next kingdom, and here's the king that's coming next, and here's who's going to come and try to conquer you. And we're going to do the same thing today. I'm not going to try to explain what the kingdoms are in this dream, in this vision, because we're going to see that take place later on in the book of Daniel. We're going to have a much different, much more uh, better time to jump into the details of that. But in this moment, I want you to see what Daniel says. He calls this in verse 45, the vision of the rock cut out of a mountain, but not by human hands. He says, King, this isn't a vision about the statue. We could easily think that. Well, this is about the statue. He describes it in depth. He says, it's awesome. It's huge. It's magnificent. It's all these things. This is a vision about a statue. And you go, no, no, no. Daniel doesn't say that. He goes, this is the vision about the rock that destroys the statue. That's where we find ourselves today. That we see that God is moving. The dream isn't about the statue. It's about the rock. The focus is the kingdom that's going to come and stand forever. He says, when this rock gets cut out, not by human hands, which means it's a rock from God. He says, and it's going to get hurled at that statue, and all of these kingdoms, the power that they have, are going to be completely destroyed. In fact, it's going to get smashed to bits, and it's going to be like dust. And when the wind blows, they're all going to be blown away. And so we can see in history, kingdoms have come, kingdoms have gone. Other than talking about them in history classes, we don't even really know all that much about them. They're here for a moment, and then they're gone. And yet Daniel says, but there's going to be this rock that's thrown. And when it hits the statue and it lands on the earth, it's going to grow to the size of a mountain and it's going to encompass the whole earth. Nothing can stop it. Here's what we're talking about. This last part of the vision that's so important. 
is the kingdom of God. His kingdom is the rock that covers the entire earth. When Jesus was on earth, he asked his disciples one night, who do people say that I am? And they said, well, some people say that you're John the Baptist. And some people say you're Elijah or a prophet. Others say you're a great teacher. And Jesus goes, well, what about you guys? Who do you say that I am? And Peter said, you're the Christ. You're the son of God. And Jesus goes, that's right. And on this confession of me being the rock, I'm going to build my church. And he says, the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. Jesus says, I'm going to install a rock on the earth, and it's Jesus. And he says, on the confession that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, he is God in flesh, he has died for our sins, he has been buried and raised back to life again, and he's ascended to the right hand of the Father. When we place our trust in Jesus, he says, you put your feet then on the rock of my kingdom. And it's firm, and it's established, and it can never be shaken And so today when we look at this, here's what I think Daniel is getting across and here's what I think God wants us to hear. Don't get too attached to your kingdoms. Don't get too attached to your kingdoms because there's only one kingdom that has staying power. Right? Babylon didn't have staying power. Greece didn't have staying power. The Roman Empire didn't have staying power. The British Empire didn't have staying power. The United States of America is not going to have staying power. The kingdom of God will be placed on the earth and has been placed on the earth. And it continues to grow and it continues to expand all over the earth. And his kingdom alone will stand forever and forever. And so the question we have to ask ourselves today is, where's your kingdom? What kingdom are you in? Some of us find ourselves in those political kingdoms. We want to be firmly established in a political kingdom. Some of us have made money our kingdom. I'm established in the financial kingdom. Some of us have made relationships our kingdom. This is where I get my worth and values, this kingdom. All of them fade away. The only thing that stays true is Jesus. The only thing that's true is his kingdom will never diminish. It will never End. And so when we see Daniel give the king the meaning of his dream, we find this in verse 46. King Nebuchadnezzar then fell prostrate before Daniel and paid him honor, and he ordered that an offering and incense be presented to him. The king said to Daniel, Surely your God is the God of gods and the Lord of kings, and he's a revealer of mysteries. For you were able to reveal this mystery. Then the king placed Daniel in a high position and lavished many gifts on him. He made him ruler over the entire province of Babylon, and he placed him in charge of all its wise men. Moreover, at Daniel's request, the king appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego administrators over the province of Babylon, while Daniel himself remained at the royal court. Now, more than likely, this doesn't mean that Nebuchadnezzar became a follower of Yahweh on that day, of the God of heaven. More than likely, Nebuchadnezzar decided he is among all of the pantheon of gods that he worshiped. He's at the top of the list. He's one among other gods, but he's the greatest of all the gods. We're going to see over time how kings change their views of God. But in this moment, I think that he recognizes, Daniel, your God is the God of gods. He's the Lord of kings. He's over everything. And so I'm going to trust that because he moves in your life, you should be someone in authority and power as well. And so he exalts Daniel to a place of power. And then Daniel goes back and he remembers, hey, you know what? I wasn't alone in this. I had some friends that prayed with me. 
they prayed for me to see God answer this need that we had. And so Daniel requests of the king to put Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in positions of power as well. And the king exalts them in the provinces of Babylon. Here's what I think. I believe God gives a platform of influence to those who resolve to make his name known and to give him glory. And it may be positions of great influence and it may be positions of minor influence, but when you stand and you make God known in your life and when you stand in integrity and when you stand and you're willing to proclaim who God is in this culture, in this world, I believe that he gives people positions of prominence and influence because we are unashamed to make his glory known in the world. And so as we close this morning, I want you to hear this. In the scope of eternity, your country of origin doesn't matter. Your political leanings don't matter in the scope of eternity. Your profession doesn't matter in the scope of eternity. The only thing that matters is your eternal citizenship. It's great to have all of those other things as part of your life in the here and now. But in the scope of eternity, they're just going to be blown away. What matters intrinsically is that you know if you've put your life in God's kingdom, if you've trusted in Jesus as your Savior, and you've fully embraced him as King and Lord and Messiah over your life. Because if you haven't, one day you're going to die, and you're not going to have a kingdom to be a part of. God is inviting you into his kingdom. He's inviting you to know him through his son, Jesus, and to be changed in your life so that you can stand with him forever and ever and ever. And so this morning, if you don't know where you stand, where it comes to Jesus and his kingdom, and before you leave here today, I'd love for you to just come and see me and talk to me about that. If you want to know more about what it looks like to be a follower of Jesus and to have a relationship with him, we want you to have that understanding of being in the kingdom of God and what it looks like to have Jesus as your God, as your king. If you're watching from home this morning and that's a question that you're asking, we'd love for you to contact us and, and engage with us. On our website, there's a place at the top of the page called Connect. You can just click on that Connect tab and then there's a connection card there. It's a digital connection card. You can respond to us. And we'd love to get in touch with you and just talk about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. For those in the room this morning, that same connection card is in the back of the chairs there. If it's an uncomfortable thing for you to come and have a conversation with me or one of our staff or elder team, we'd love for you just to take that connection card, write your name and information on it, and check the box that says, I want to know more about following Jesus, and then place it in our giving boxes before you leave. Somebody will contact you this week so we can tell you more about what it means to follow Jesus. It's the most important decision you'll ever make in your life because his kingdom is the only one that will endure forever, and we want you to be a part of it. Thanks so much for checking out our message today. We hope you are challenged and blessed by it. We want to invite you to come and worship with us in person if you live in the Tri-Cities area. We meet on Sunday mornings at 9 and 1045 a.m. at One Fellowship Point in Kingsport, Tennessee. You can also get more information about us from our website or our mobile app. Have a great day.